Good evening. Well, good full house. Um, it's a privilege to uh, be speaking uh, here tonight in the August Athenaeum, an organization that I'm uh, proud to be a member of. Um, so I thought I would um, do something. I, I thought I would begin with a brief reading from the book, something I haven't uh, done yet in my uh, uh, speaking campaign. Um, but, um, and then we're also going to try a few uh, slides with the crack Carol Beggy here. He's going to just click on. Um, this is from the, the introduction, and um, the context is we've just established that um, Ted, after he died, met a uh, rather inglorious end, to say the least, by uh, being frozen in an Arizona cryonics facility. And I'm describing the reaction um, uh, among the public which, uh, who, who did not know um, at the time that this had happened. It didn't become public for a few days. Having no idea Williams had been frozen, his many fans were left to ponder the kid's legacy, his magnificent 406 mark in 1941, achieved on the last day of the season when Ted, in perhaps the defining moment of his career, declined the invitation of his manager to sit out the final day of the year to protect his 399.55 average, which would have been rounded to 400, and proceeded to go six for eight, playing both games of a doubleheader. And his consistent flair for delivering other dramatic moments, such as winning the 1941 All-Star Game for the American League with a three-run homer in the bottom of the ninth, surviving a fiery crash landing in his jet after getting shot down by enemy gunfire in Korea and hitting a home run in his last at-bat in 1960. They remembered Williams as the driven perfectionist, his swagger, style, and panache in the batter's box, a shade under six foot four, skinny and loose, hips swaying back and forth, bat cocked close to his body, hands grinding, then unleashing at the last possible second his perfect, slightly uppercut swing, and the what-ifs of how much grander his final numbers would have been had he not lost nearly five seasons in his prime fighting two wars, tempered by the realization that serving in the wars had also enhanced his legacy immeasurably. And they recall the way he loped around the bases in his distinctive home run trot, head always tucked way down, the way his explosive, often dark persona regularly made more news than his exploits on the field as he feuded with, gestured toward, and spat at a small faction of fans who delighted in tormenting him, and as he carried on a running war with the sports writers who, he felt, had pried unjustifiably into his life and knocked him unfairly, and how despite such crude outbursts, Williams consistently demonstrated a basic sense of generosity and kindness especially through his work for the Jimmy Fund, a charity for children with cancer, for which he raised millions of dollars over the years. Ted was an original, not a traditional, modest, self-effacing hero, but brash, profane, outspoken, and guileless. Self-taught and inquiring, he excelled as a marine fighter pilot and became one of the most accomplished fishermen in the world. For better and worse, he was always his own man, never a phony, characteristics that helped him outlast his critics and win widespread affection and admiration as he aged. 
He had three favorite songs, which he played in his mind to help him fall asleep. The Star Spangled Banner, the Marine Hymn, and Take Me Out to the Ball Game. <laughs> On visits to Boston long after he retired, Williams was struck by how people fawned and fussed over him, puzzled that he seemed more popular and in retirement than he was in his playing days. The best evidence of this was his reception at the 1999 All-Star Game at Fenway Park. Ted, by then fragile and, and ailing, was driven out on the field in a golf cart to a thunderous ovation, and then in a memorable scene, swarmed by a new generation of all-star players who knew they were in the presence of baseball royalty. The players lingered, wanting to soak in the moment and bask in Williams's glow. During each Williams at-bat, something between a hush and a buzz suddenly filled the air as the crowd shifted from autopilot engagement to edge-of-the-seat anticipation. I was looking around for a story one day, and someone said there was a blind guy on the first baseline, remembered Tim Horgan, who covered the Red Sox for the Boston Herald and the, and the Boston Evening Traveler in the 50s. I went up to the man and said, pardon me for asking, but why do you come to the park? Why not listen to the game on the radio? He said, I love the sounds of the game when Ted comes up. Red Sox fans and the rabid press corps that covered the team seemed as captivated by Ted's personality as they were by his slugging. He was a prickly prima donna whose much chronicled rabbit ears had an unerring ability to zero in on even a few scattered boos amid all the cheers. He seemed immune to receiving praise, but generally couldn't tolerate criticism. On the field, his moods ranged from sheer joy and exuberance during his rookie year in 1939 to rage and petulance later in his career. Williams reasoned that he was an expert at what he did, was trying his best to do even better, and thus resented any criticism. From 1940 to his last game in 1960, he swore off the time-honored baseball convention of tipping his hat to the fans. Once, once after a spring training game in Miami in 1947, Ted appeared to doff his cap as he crossed home plate after hitting a home run. So alert was the Boston press to Williams's every move that the Globe's beat writer at the time, High Hurwitz, rushed down to the clubhouse after the game and asked Ted if he had, in fact, tipped his hat. He denied that he had and said he was merely mopping his brow. <laughs> Whereupon Hurwitz famously wrote, it was the heat, not the humility. So that's a little reading. I thought I'd just uh, talk to you a little bit uh, now about the, my, my process in, uh, in writing the book and how I got into it and, and what, uh, what Williams meant to me. Um, he was a figure in my life. Uh, I'm old enough that I saw him play the last uh, three or four years of his career. And I was a you know ten year old kid in in uh, 1958, and I started hanging out at Fenway Park as often as I could. I would go to the games. Um, I got his autograph once. I was hanging out in the players' parking lot with a lot of other screaming brats, uh, clamoring for his autograph. And he stopped. He didn't always sign, but he stopped and signed that day. And um, wanted to establish some order in the process and made us uh, get in line 
And I, and I got that autograph and uh, still have it, the ink fading badly with the passage of more than 50 years in time. And, um, but during this long process of writing this book, when on the days when the muses weren't exactly clicking, uh, I would look at that ball uh, occasionally for inspiration. And I was there um, in 1958 on one of the low moments of his uh, career. Um, he was a perfectionist, and he hated to, uh, to strike out or do anything bad. And so once after a rare strikeout, he went to fling his bat in disgust, and he intended to throw it on the ground, but he had this rosin and stick him on his hands, and he lost control of the bat, and it sailed into the box seats and hit an old lady right smack in the face. It was an awful scene. And uh, Ted was mortified, and um, I think we have a picture of that. If we can, no, we don't have it. All right. Um, it showed him just how angry he was, um, and um, he rushed over, attended to the lady, and um, asked if she was okay. And Bud Collins, the, the Globe uh, columnist and tennis writer, who at the time was a cub reporter for the Herald, he saw a story here. He, he saw a lawsuit is what he saw. And so he came rushing into the clubhouse and went up to Joe Cronin, the gen then the general manager, and said, Joe, this lady's not looking good. She's, she's hurt. Are you guys worried about a lawsuit? Oh, there'll be no lawsuit, says Cronin very definitively. Well, how do you know, says Collins? Because this woman happens to be my housekeeper, and she loves Ted Williams. <laughs> So I, I followed Ted um, in retirement. He took a visible job with uh, Sears. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame on the, on the first ballot. He uh, returned to baseball as a uh, not very successful manager for the Washington Senators. Uh, he was a one-dimensional manager. So all he cared about was hitting. And so he didn't, the, the, the pitching and the other parts of the game didn't interest him just as much. Uh, he wrote his autobiography in 1969 when he still had 33 more years to live. He mellowed, he became more expansive uh, in retirement. He became a goodwill um, ambassador for baseball and, and really a beloved figure. And in his death, I was struck um, how much interest there still was in his life and how many lives he had touched. I remember the, the letters to the editor uh, page were filled with these uh, very poignant stories, um, uh, often telling about uh, how important Ted was in the father-son relationship, and he was sort of a glue in the social fabric. And, um, you know, in my 25 years at the Globe, I was on the, the news side, and I didn't, I didn't come up as a sports writer, and, uh, but I was just a fan. And, and I, I speed read the, uh, the early Williams biographies that were done mostly by uh, fawning sports writers celebrating his exploits on the field. And I thought there was a lot of gaps in his life, um, his personal life, his, his uh, really deprived childhood growing up in um, San Diego during the Depression. That's his mother right there and young Ted and uh, his your brother Danny. And um, um, the fact that he was Mexican-American, which hardly anyone knew and probably still doesn't to this day, it was a fact that came out uh, just a month before he died. His mother was Mexican, uh, going back several generations. And Williams chose to conceal this 
and I wanted to find out why. Um, his, his service in not uh, one war but two wars, giving up nearly five years uh, in his prime to, uh, to serve in World War II and, and Korea. Uh, he had three wives and for 24 years had lived with a, uh, a woman that no one knew anything about. He had three children, and then there was the whole dark cryonics ending, and I wondered if this was really something that Ted wanted. Um, so I dug in, and I started with the, the, uh, the childhood, and um, Mae Williams, his mother, was a, a Salvation Army uh, zealot out until all hours of the night, saving souls on the streets of San Diego in a mission that uh, stretched from Tijuana to Los Angeles, but she concentrated in San Diego. And um, this, this was her life, and uh, she wouldn't get home until 11, 12 o'clock at night. The father was a, uh, Ted's father was a, a drunk and a near-do-well, and he was never around. And so Ted and his younger brother, Danny, were some of the first uh, latchkey kids. They were out on the porch waiting for someone to come home and cook them dinner. And uh, luckily for Ted, there was a playground down the field with, with floodlights, which was unusual back then. And so baseball became his, his passion and really his, uh, his salvation. Um, Ted, Ted uh, didn't, he hardly embraced the uh, Mexican uh, part of his family. And one of the first uh, really interesting things I did was go out to Santa Barbara where a lot of the first cousins and their descendants still live, and uh, they put together a, a meeting for me and a sort of a group interview with, with 20 of these cousins. Um, and uh, Ted decided to cover up the fact that he had any sort of Mexican heritage at all. He was worried about prejudice of the day, um, hurting his baseball career chiefly, and but he also really didn't uh, relate to them on any level, and he rather disparagingly referred to them as the Mexicans and uh, didn't, didn't have much to do with them. And there was a wonderful story, or revealing story, the end of 1939, after uh, Williams's rookie year, where he'd set the American League on fire, and he returned home to San Diego, the conquering hero, and about 100 of these Mexican relatives came down to, uh, to greet him. And Ted took one look at them and hightailed it in the other direction. Didn't want to be seen with them. So I thought that was interesting. Um, he was an angry guy, Williams. And uh, it was, I think the anger was mostly rooted in resentment of his mother for never being home and for the uh, almost Dickensian circumstances of his, of his childhood. Uh, he was deprived. And uh, the anger was, was a double-edged sword for him. He was able to, cons to channel the anger constructively on the ball field uh, because he always said that he, he hit better mad. So he used it as a motivator. Uh, he nurtured his rage, as um, the writer Roger Kahn uh, once put it. And, uh, you know, he would manufacture feuds with the baseball writers and uh, he always claimed he got a bad press when actually he got a good press. But, uh, and then he would go off on, uh, you know, duly mad, he would go off on a tear and hit 500 for um, a, a couple of months. 
But in his personal life, this anger um, caused him great difficulty. It would bubble up in, in inappropriate times. And um, uh, the, the, the price of being in Ted's orbit was that you had to endure these, they were like squalls. They were just, you know, little storms and they would pass, but they were, they were vicious storms. And um, he would try to act on the other side of the storm like nothing had happened and expected those who loved him to be there for him. Um, but uh, he lost three wives over this who were unable to, to take it. Um, other friends uh, were able to take it. And I remember talking to Bobby Doerr, uh, his, his old friend from the teammate from the Red Sox who's still alive, living in Oregon. And uh, I said, did you ever call Ted on his bad behavior? No, you couldn't do that, he said. Um, but um, if you were there for him, he, he loved you for life. So, um, and he, as I said, he, he uh, the, the, his chief instrument for um, uh, whipping up this anger was the, the writers. I have a special uh, chap, I have a chapter on his relationship with the press because I thought it was a revealing window into his um, character. Um, he, even though he he did get a, a great press, he uh, if he took a bad column, there was one columnist back in the day. Um, some may remember him here, called Dave Egan. He was he wrote under the pseudonym the Colonel, and he was the columnist for the old Daily Record, the Hearst-owned paper. And uh, Williams owned the town. He owned the town. He dominated this town like no athlete, Bobby Orr or uh, Bill Russell or anybody has. And it, there was front page news on Ted practically every day. I mean, if he burped, the editors wanted it on the front page. And the writers knew this, and they were hungry for, for copy. And uh, Egan was a contrarian, and uh, he made it his business. If Ted owned the town, he was going to take him down. So every column was, was negative. And um, Ted, as a result, sort of tarred the whole press with uh, the Egan brush. And um, he, would, he would give the writers what for every day. Uh, he'd see him coming and said, what kind of crap are you guys going to write today? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, the other players were often amused by this because they didn't dare treat the, the writers the same way. They were afraid that they'd get uh, bad notices. And um, this one fellow, uh, the shortstop of the 50s, Don Budden, told me that he uh, said to Ted one day, Ted, how can you talk to the writers that way? Ted said, son, if you hit 350, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> the other thing that interested me particularly about Williams was uh, his service in, in two wars, um, World War II and, and Korea. And uh, he was not just doing uh, KP duty. He was a Marine fighter, fighter pilot, an elite pilot, who John Glenn called uh, one of the best pilots he'd ever seen. And uh, so he did his time. He did it, uh, it it's, it's sort of glossed over sometimes. He wasn't thrilled uh, by going into either war. In 1942, post, post Pearl Harbor, a very patriotic time when, when uh, most people were rushing to enlist, Ted got a 3A deferment, which meant that he was the sole supporter of his mother. 
and uh, therefore entitled to, uh, to not go in, to get deferred. And um, Ted, Ted thought, I mean, it was legitimate. He was. The father had, had gone by then. And um, he also wanted to earn his money, though. He wanted to play that 1942 season, and he did, and he won the Triple Crown. But it got, things got really hot around mid-August, and the Red Sox management uh, privately were, were hoping that he, he would enlist because they thought the, uh, it didn't look good, really, from a PR standpoint. And Ted would get some, um, some mail uh, that was that would, from people, fans, who objected to this. One was just a simple uh, page, a yellow page, the color of cowardice. And uh, finally, he had enough and uh, cut a deal with the Navy in, in midsummer that uh, he would enlist at the end of the season if they would let him finish out the season. So he didn't see any action in, uh, in World War II. He was an uh, instructor, mostly based in, in Pensacola. And then, uh, really unfairly, um, several years later, when the Korean War broke out, he was recalled for Korea. And um, he was furious. He didn't want to go in. And uh, it was unfair. He had lost three, year, three full years to World War II, and now he was going to lose two more in his prime. And he hired, actually hired a lawyer, I, I report in the book, to try and look for some loophole to get out. He, he never said anything at the time. It was, it was uh, uh, if they want me, I'll go. Uh, but he was bitterly uh, resentful of it. And his service in the Marine Corps was not something that he really came to embrace until later in life. Um, and then he became, on reflection, really proud of his service and in, in Korea, he, was, he saw action and uh, famously was shot down and uh, should have died. And I, I uh, tracked down the, the fellow who was on the mission, one fellow who was on the mission with him that day and who guided him back into the base. And, um, I mean, it was a, a bad-looking scene. The, the, the uh, landing gear wouldn't come down. Um, the plane was in flames, and he landed it on its belly and skidded for, uh, you know, practically a mile and hopped out, and then the plane caught on fire. I mean, really practically disintegrated after that. And so he was lucky. And, um, but I think, you anyway, know, the, one of the great parlor games that people always play with Williams is what was, would his final numbers have been had he not missed those five years in his prime, and he probably would have been up around 700 home runs, uh, just shy of Ruth's 714, and um, certainly over 3,000 hits. But I think for his legacy long term, the fact that he served in those two wars um, is better for him than having served those five years, especially when you compare that, uh, that service in two wars um, to the modern-day superstar, and, and you think how inconceivable that it is that any modern-day player uh, would serve in two wars. Can you see A-Rod going off to Iraq and Afghanistan? I don't think so. Anyway, when, in writing about Ted Williams, there are, there are, so, many, um, there are so many great stories. Um, the trouble, one trouble with telling them is they're, they're, they're so profane, you, you, can barely, you can barely say it. I think Ted invented the F word as an adjective. Um, 
But one of my favorites, it was in the mid-50s, and he was, uh, uh, there were, the Sox were playing the, the Washington Senators, and there was a young pitcher named Pedro Ramos, who was a Cuban, and um, he struck Ted out, and he was a rookie, and he was thrilled. He couldn't believe he'd struck out the great Ted Williams. So he had the chutzpah after the game to come into the Red Sox clubhouse and ask Ted if he would sign the ball <laughs> that, that, uh, that he struck him out on. And Ted cussed him out, you son of a, get out of here. And finally, grousing around, signed it for him, get out of here. And uh, a couple of, a couple of uh, months later, the Red Sox are playing the, the uh, Senators again, and it's Ramos is pitching, and up comes Ted. He clocks the first pitch, 20, 20 rows up on the bleachers, and as he rounds first, he says, I'll sign that son of a bitch too if you can find it. He, he struggled with his language. Um, he struggled with it. I mean, really. And he, it was mostly harmless if you can get used to hearing the F word constantly. One time there was a, a, a mother and, and her son were out shopping, and uh, they ran into Ted. And it's in one of the local stores, and the kid loves Ted, and he's, he's uh, he, he, you know, he just wants to tag along. And the mother is scared because he can, she can hear William swearing like a, like a trooper. So no, Johnny, we can't, we can't, uh, you know, don't, don't go too close. And uh, so they follow him for, for a while, and he's Ted's still swearing. And um, finally, the mother says, you know, "You've got to promise me, you're not going to ever use uh, the F word." But the kid says, "But mom, Ted is the greatest effing hitter that ever lived." <laughs> Well, he struggled as a husband and, uh, and, and a father. Um, he was, uh, he was, his first wife was uh, Dora Soul from uh, Minnesota. This is a, a cheesecake shot uh, where he's catching a babe, as it were. Um, he, uh, he had many, many girlfriends uh, while he was married and uh, throughout um, his he had a child with this uh, first uh, wife, Dora Soul, named Bobby Joe, and um, she died recently in uh, obscurity in Tennessee. And um, I was lucky enough to uh, to talk with her. One of the, the the biggest breaks I got in this book was the fact that uh, Bobby Joe, the oldest daughter, and Claudia, the youngest, uh, decided to talk to me and tell me what it was like to grow up. Uh, with Ted Williams, and that opened a lot of other doors. And um, his second wife was a, a Chicago model named uh, Lee Howard, and I tracked her down and talked with her, and that also was very illuminating on uh, what it was like to be Ted's wife. And uh, she said she didn't see the anger coming, and it just got too much to, uh, to live with, and so she left him. And uh, the third wife was uh, Dolores Wetak, a Vermont model and actress with whom he had um, two children. And that was John Henry, these two, John Henry and Claudia. Um, and Claudia was the one who, um, after telling me no uh, for a couple of years, finally said, after Bobby Joe did, um, that uh, she would talk to me. And I think. Her chief motivation was to try and uh, 
tell the other side of the story of John Henry, uh, who was vilified uh, in the press for the cryonics decision. I'll, I'll come to that. But um, um, he he knew that he was uh, he knew that he was a failure uh, as a as a husband and a father, and he would tell his friends that later in life. He would just say flat out, as a husband and a father, I struck out. I couldn't cut it. And uh, but he tried to make amends late in life by reconnecting with these two, John Henry and and Claudia. And um, John Henry, the son, um, uh, was a graduate of uh, the University of Maine and uh, really not uh, qualified to do much. So you see, I mean, a handsome guy uh, like Ted. That's a shot in 1991 um, on the 50th anniversary of uh, Ted's 406. And um, John Henry, Ted had, had been the victim of a memorabilia of swindle. And uh, John Henry saw an opportunity there. Um, and he said, Dad, um, you can trust your son to run your business. And so Ted, uh, I think partially trying to make amends for all the years that he'd been absent, um, let, let John Henry do that. And really the, la the last part of the book is a story about a father and a son um, getting to know each other really for the first time. And um, John Henry, um, he, he ran the memorabilia business. He went through uh, a lot of money uh, doing that. So he certainly did exploit his father. But I concluded that he also loved his father uh, because he was there in the end uh, doing, in the trenches, doing the hard work of taking care uh, of a dying parent in a really nitty-gritty way. And um, he had got interested in uh, cryonics in, in 1997. And cryonics, for those who, who don't know really about it, uh, is not really a science, in, in my opinion. It's, it's uh, probably a cult uh, more than a, a science, uh, a belief prescribed to by several hundred people, uh, perhaps more, that medical science will one day um, advance to the point where it will be possible to cure you of whatever it is you've died from and perhaps bring you back to life. Uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, you know, there's less science in it than there is uh, playing the lottery. I mean, it's a hope. And um, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a sad ending, uh, this, what, what happened. Uh, they told me that, that John Henry had begun raising, I'm, I'm getting this story from Claudia, and it's in the book for the first time as the, the Williams family line about how Ted came to be frozen. And Claudia says that uh, starting in 1997, Ted, had, who was interested in science, not a religious man, John Henry had raised this with him and, hey, Dad, what do you think? And, and Ted was dismissive, get out of here with that stuff. I don't want to hear it. And, um, but she says that in November of 2000, right before Ted was having a, a pacemaker installed, um, 
she and John Henry um, met him in his hospital room and asked him to agree to this for them. They had decided that this was something they wanted to do. John Henry chiefly, who had convinced the skeptical Claudia, and she agreed. And uh, the way Claudia framed it to me, it was we were asking dad to do this for us. And she said to me, you have kids, right? And if your kids came to you and said, dad, there's something that's really important to us, will you do this for us? And you'd agree, right? So yeah, depends, maybe, you know. Um, and uh, she said that that was when they, um, they made what she called a pact and wrote out you know, very, very crudely on the first piece of paper they found in a hospital that, um, that they would do this on, uh, on Ted's death. My, my reporting, my, my interviews, um, I'm skeptical of this story. Uh, I think if Ted did agree to this, he was not of sound mind. And I was able to track down um, at least a dozen people um, that he talked to after this supposed pact uh, that he wanted to be cremated uh, as he wrote in his will and wanted to have his ashes spread in the keys. So um, it is an inglorious ending. Um, and a lot of the old timers that I talked to along the way uh, were really horrified by this, especially the teammates. And they said, you can't write about this. And, but I thought I had to write about it because it's the last memory that people have of Williams. And I was curious to try to find out uh, if this is something that, that he really wanted. Um, but I also think that with the passage of time, um, you know, when, when, when he initially died, uh, there was all this concern, you know, the, the late night comedians on television were making popsicle jokes and it was bad. And um, older people um, especially were concerned that this would tarnish Ted's legacy. But my conclusion uh, is that, that it hasn't. Uh, that, that people know this was some kind of family uh, affair and that all families uh, are sometimes dysfunctional. And um, I think that with the, the, the passage of time, people's lasting memories uh, are of Ted, uh, the kid, the youthful swagger, the 406, uh, the kid forever. Thank you. All right.